Welcome to Amongst the Waves. I'm your host, Tanya Carroll, and I'm a surf coach, a Czech practitioner, and I'm completely caught up in all things surfing and getting behind the scenes of surfing culture. I have surrendered my soul to surfing. In each of the episodes of Amongst the Waves, I will bring you a perspective you might not have considered in the hope that it inspires you to be a better human and that it helps to build your stoke. In this episode, my guest is Jess Grimwood. Jess has been completely obsessed with surfing since the age of 10. In her junior years, she enjoyed a career on the Australian Pro Junior Tour and then went on to the WQS internationally. The highlight of Jess's surfing career was winning an Australian title in 2014 and then representing Team Australia at the ISA World Games 2014 in Peru and placing fourth. She then made the Australian team in 2017 and competed in the World Games. Now a retired career firefighter, Jess has found her way back to the sport and industry she loves. Jess enjoys being involved in the commentary teams for surfing New South Wales events, WSL qualifying events and other specialty surfing competitions. Jess is incredibly passionate about women's surfing and enjoys nothing better than catching waves with friends, old and new. This episode of Amongst the Waves comes with a trigger warning. During this conversation, Jess is very candid about her struggle within her mental health. We discuss her attempted suicide, what it was like for her to be admitted to a mental health ward of a hospital, and the effect that had on her family and friends. We also discuss Jess's ongoing recovery and her choices around medications. All opinions expressed in this conversation are individual and should not be used as a prescription for your own mental health. Neither Jess nor I are qualified medical practitioners and cannot take responsibility for actions taken as a result of this podcast. If you are concerned for your own health or for someone you love, you should consult with your own medical professionals or call Lifeline on 131114. Hi, and welcome to the show, Jess. Um, today I have with me Jess Grimwood. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Jess. Who are, Who is Jess? Um, at the moment, Jess is somebody who's right in the middle of figuring out the next bit of life. I think uh, who I was when I first started surfing back in the day is pretty different to how I find myself now. But yeah, at the moment, I'm working in the surf industry. So as a commentator um, for a lot of the Australian events and I'm so obsessed with surfing and um, that comes from my history of I learned to surf when I was a lot younger with my dad. I think he first chucked me on a surfboard when I was about maybe three weeks old, I think it was. Wow. Yeah. So he had me on the front of the surfboard and mum wasn't that stoked on it because she's a little bit um, terrified by the ocean, but okay. uh, she let it go. And then it just went from strength to strength. And dad used to always say he's created a little monster when I was around about 10 or 11. And all I've done since then pretty much has lived and breathed surfing. So I've gone through that competitive stage in surfing with the pro junior career and um, I represented Australia a few times for surfing as well. And then I kind of, you know, took a different path off into a career for around about 10 years. And now I feel like I've almost come full circle back at the start of the frothing grom, obsessed with everything to do with surfing Passion and again. Getting, yeah, getting back into the industry. Uh, what's your age now? Like how old are you now? I'm 32. I'm about to turn 33. So I honestly feel like I've come full circle. It's so strange how you can, like, you know, you, your path can just lead you down one way and you're so involved in it and then suddenly snap you're all the way back to the start where all you want to do is surf like three or four times a day. So, yeah, it's pretty funny. It's very cool. And it's really like we're going to get into that in this interview or in this episode. It's not an interview, it's a conversation. Um, but because you've gone through, I'm guessing, um, well, clearly a very rough period of your life and to be able to come back full circle and to get back and find that passion again there's 
sometimes people don't find that. And when I'm coaching people at the moment, particularly guys, actually, because I coach at Urban Surf, there's so many men who loved surfing as kids and did it up until their 20s, had kids, didn't, couldn't find the time for it, couldn't find the money to do it. It like fell out of surfing, but are now coming back into it, particularly in the suburbs here in Melbourne with Urban Surf being such a good opportunity for them, that people do that. And I think it's, um, from what I've seen, it's something that it's a real anchor and it's a drive and there's something about the ocean and about surfing and the sport of it and that feeling of getting on a wave and going down the wave that draws them back again. Yeah, I think it's like that. Um, you get to that point where you realise that you don't know how to have fun anymore. You don't know how to play or something. There's something that happens in that mid bit where you're being like a professional. and An yeah, adult. Yeah, an adult. Yeah, and you kind of forget, I think. I know I felt that way and I know a few of my mates have felt the same and they're boys actually as well, or men. Yeah. And they're just like, I just don't have that much fun anymore. Like everything's just you're working and you're paying bills or you're looking after the family and that's it. And then surfing is just so pure and so um, innocent, I guess. And it's such a grounding experience and it doesn't really matter, I guess. If like for me, I don't really mind if I catch zero waves in a session or if I catch 10 of the best waves of my life. Like it's not about that anymore. So it's, I think, yeah, you, I don't know, you must hit one of the, some of those big speed humps and then suddenly end up back going, wait, what am I doing? Like you catch a glimpse of yourself being so serious or being so, you know, upset or unhappy with your life. And then you yeah. go, hold on. Yeah. Why did I do this in the first place? And you've got to get back to that raw feeling of the ecstasy. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't go away. Like it's, like I said, like I went down that competitive path for so many years as well. And the stoke that I get from just like a straight hand session is probably just as much as some of the best heats I've ever had in my life and some of the best waves I've ever traveled to to surf. So it's, I think that's the beauty about surfing that brings everybody back. And like you said, anchors them to it because I feel like in other sports, I mean, how many other athletes do you see or professional sports people that retire from their sport and then and never do it again yeah never do it the tennis players don't go and play the most tennis of their life after their career like no. surfers seem to do that they just retire and then they their surfing goes up through the yeah. roof because you love it so much so there's something else there I think that's a really interesting perspective and a really interesting point so my first husband was a tennis coach and um, so I was in that world very heavily both of my eldest children were very good. And the eldest one actually um, probably could have followed his father in the way of going down that professional pathway. And my husband didn't at the time. He um, got sidetracked by life. But when the kids were born, like I was very much in that world. And it's you're right, like Andre Agassi's um, autobiography is one of the best autobiographies I have ever read. But he hated the sport. And you don't hear that very often in surfing. Like you still get out there in the waves and you can see all of those older guys and older girls still out there surfing and still having the best time of their lives. Yeah, like I can't imagine tennis players fantasising about what the court feels like under their feet or what it looks like when they scrape the net, you know, with a, yeah. with a hit back or whatever it is, you know. I can, but I can imagine every single surfer that I surf with, even like yesterday afternoon, mostly probably over 30s, 30s to 60-year-old men. I'd say there was probably about 10 guys in the water. And I know that all day at work or waiting to go for their surf, they're fantasising about being in the ocean. Yeah, frothy. (laughs) It's it's just like nothing else. And even for 
you know, the new people that join the sport, like my partner, she's only just been surfing for maybe a year and a bit. And yeah. she is just obsessed, like a grommet, like that. It's it's That's start always. Yeah. <laughs> it's just there's a something about it that it's that relationship that you have with yourself and with surfing that no one else can get into and infiltrate and it just lasts forever. It's honestly such a good thing in your life. Very cool. Um, yeah, I started surfing about two years ago now, uh, but have grown up around the sport, but didn't get into it because I was a kid in the 70s and the 80s and it was a boys sport and girls sat on the beach. And I was actually like, I had a fear of the ocean as well. So not of the ocean, I had a, I had a fear of fish. So that's one thing that kept me out of the water. But the other thing was, it was like girls just didn't do it. We just didn't get in there. It was a, a guy's thing. We sat on the beach and watched the boys. That was the stereotypical 80s and 70s, 80s kids. Um, so I can completely get where she's coming from because I dream about it. And with now, with being in lockdown and even during our um, maintenance period, when we, we shut down at Urban Surf for scheduled maintenance right before the lockdowns happened, even during that time, I know that that's coming up. I know I'm not going to be able to get in the water. I dream about it. So my subconscious goes nuts and it's just like, like I'm, I can see and feel every wave and like, and I wake up in the morning and I'm like, how much did I, so my husband's name's Andrew. How much did I kick you, Andrew, last night? Because I'm actually physically surfing in the water in my dreams. It's, yeah, it's borders on obsession. I completely understand where your partner's coming from. Yeah. Wait, were you scared of fish or sharks? Or yeah, no, that's the normal question. Uh, fish. So um, I think it probably started around sharks. So I can really remember clearly. So I grew, grew up in Canberra, but we used to have a house and caravan down in Tathra. So it was around those beaches and around the, the fishing side of things as well, like Tathra Wharf and down at the, um, when dad would bring the boat in after they'd go out fishing every morning. So there was an, like, I do remember as a very young kid that they'd caught a shark, dad caught a shark and he scared us with the shark. But I think it came before that. And I think it's probably something I heard my mum say very early on in my life, because she didn't like what was in the water either and didn't like eating fish. So I didn't actually even start eating fish until about 10 years ago. But yeah, it's not so much the sharks because actually in the last couple of years, I've grown to appreciate like the sharks and, and then our human misunderstanding of what they are and, and what they're there for. But um, yeah, that's no, the fish. And it's something that I'm, I'm working on and overcoming, but it's, yeah, it's, they've, they've got teeth, Jess. <laughs> Surely and, there's not that many fish in open surf pool. <laughs> no, no, which is why it's perfect for me. It's one of the, like, one of the things that when I heard that it was opening, we used to own a gym right nearby where Evan Surf is. So, like, we go down and watch Bells every year when it's on. So I have followed it for a very long time. But when we heard whispers through the community that there's a wave pool going to be opening, I'm like, okay, I could actually get into this now. And because it's something that I've wanted to do is to coach athletes for a very long time in that surfing world. But there was a, a disconnect because I hadn't actually, I'd surfed a few times myself, but not actually learned how to do it and studied it and that sort of thing so I got into it with the purpose of being a surf coach at Urban Surf so I have had to like obviously some of the qualifications I've had to do have been in the ocean and been in the water so I have had to work up to overcoming those fears to get those qualifications knowing that I would be completely safe once I got to Urban Surf because there's no fish I know maybe that's the next step in tackling the fear we could just add some fish into the Urban Surf pool <laughs> See maybe <what> maybe <laughs> I, you know what I think it might be the just totally off that point whilst up in the forefront the future I feel like for competitive surfing is having um, elite performance coaches that aren't actually surfers because I think you need a surf coach but you actually need a performance coach who brings a different perspective because it's 
you know, surfing's only progressed, you know, this much yeah. in how many decades. And it's because yeah, yeah. it's it's the same perspective. We look at it through the same set of eyes. Everyone's, oh, yeah, do this there, do a cutty there or do this, move like this because that's how the people in the videos, you know, it's it's like with every other sport, their performance coaches don't necessarily come directly from the highest level of performance in that sport. They come yeah, yeah. with a different perspective and um, ability to like, tweak you know articulate things to the athletes where the other where a surfer who spent 30 years in the industry just goes oh just do a cutty yeah and they're like well how yeah I'm so glad you brought that up that's and that's what I have been talking about with a few people in this podcast in the recordings that I've already done but um yeah totally like because I can see the missing elements and again that's one of the really good reasons why I wanted to speak to you when I came across you was because of the mental health aspect of any professional sport but particularly in surfing because it's come a long way, but in terms of professionalism with the athletes, and I don't know where the responsibility lies with this, but having a complete whole package of a coach who understands emotions, the limbic system, circadian rhythms, women's menstrual cycles, um, nutrition, uh, gut health, spiritual health, as well as movement biomechanics, like that's what the sport needs. And myself and there's a few others who are in this industry now who are, who do this all of that um but and I know that's not for everybody and I know that rubs against because I have come up against this it rubs against some of the old you're smiling rubs up against some of the old school coaching and the methods that they were using and I don't see it as me coming in or us coming in and going this is what you need to do this is what you need to change I come in from the perspective of we can help you here and you can help us understand your methods and your your aspects of the surf like the sport and and how it feels because I don't understand or don't feel I don't know what it feels like to do an air but another coach might but also the athlete's able to explain that to me as well so coming from different perspectives perspectives we can help each other and make the sport Mm. so much better I think you're in a you're I can see in like 10 years down the track in sport because of the trajectory that we're on is that that's going to be common speak but I can see like for I know just based on my own experiences and knowing a bit about a little bit about the history Australia is going to be one of the more traditionalist countries that will maybe take a bit longer to flip over to that way of thinking because I know like there's athletes that I've spoken to from um, Israel and from all these different countries that are not you know necessarily the dominant surfing countries mm-hmm. that their coaches and that their performance teams are looking at that so deeply and they were looking at that from their junior careers not just now that they've become olympians right. and that conversation like you know everything like the gut health and like you said the circadian riv- rhythms and everything that makes you a holistic athlete or person affects how you perform in surfing whereas you know it's only been in the last probably five years that I've heard surfers related to or referenced as athletes like they used to just when we were doing competitions and like and this is my generation let alone the people that are still running the industry you know all the top people it's we're never athletes never ever ever and so legitimizing it and it becoming an Olympic sport and then you know people like the AIS or the um, Sport Australia people just recognizing it for being a professional sport then that's this is like that really really big transition that's what in my opinion anyway for surfing and it's going to be the most interesting time to be in if you can you know weather the storm that goes through the transition which I'm pretty sure you're going to be fine with (laughs) it'll come out on the other side of this 
yeah, this big change up. And I have conversations like this all the time with so many different people who are in this middle bit in the industry and who are balancing that, trying not to tread on too many toes, but also really having a vision for the future of performance and surfing. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's like, it's, it's legitimate now. It's like athletes, you have to be treated like athletes. You have to work as an athlete. And that Absolutely. doesn't just mean on your surfboard, it means everything. So and it's land-based training as well. Yeah. And it's respecting the culture and respecting that and really understanding the really nitty gritty of the culture. And that's something that fascinates me because the more I dig with it, the deeper it, <laughs> the deeper the hole seems to be in understanding it. But it's like for me in learning, like I'm passionate about learning and understanding the human body and the human mind and the psychology behind that. So that cultural thing and that culture of um it's not that they don't want to be professional, but it's it's very deep in the psychology of, like you just said, about calling yourselves athletes. Like that is a really big step for someone who probably came through this industry and never earned any money from it at all. So they've still got that mindset of you can't make money in the industry. You can't make money in surfing. It's not going to be a career. You have something else on the side. And I'm not. that's not to say that you don't have something else on the side but and have a very holistic, like you said, perspective of life because it's not all about being in that bubble. Um, but understanding that it can be done if you do it and perhaps tweak it in a way that's now of the 2020s, not of the 1990s, because I see so many pathways. And like I just listened to your podcast with Shannon, opening up avenues for women to be able to commentate, like that's huge. Like that's that's awesome because that's something that a professional athlete might have as an option after they finish their career, like the AFL athletes, like teach them now how to speak, get them Instagram accounts, set them up as a business now, coach them in not just the aspects of surfing and what it takes to be an athlete, but aspects of how to be a, a good human and have a career after that as well. Like think about that long-term vision. Yeah, I, that's so perfectly said because I think, I guess the most basic way I can think about the industry from my experience over whatever it's been in it um I can see it being more likened to like a a time and service um progression like in your in your career so and I think we're just about to shift fully into that merit-based kind of progression so before you were you were a surfer regardless of how you did you went on the QS or you did the pro juniors you went on the QS you went on the CT and then you usually got put as a head of one of the big four companies in the surf industry right. or you became a part of running the surf industry, like the events and whatever else is on top of it. And they never looked outside that bubble because they're so, those guys, you know, the 50, 60 year old guys grew up when surfing was so anti everything, anti part of the establishment. Yeah, exactly. And so now there's that huge switch where everyone's looking at it. And people are starting to get into positions just under them merit-based because they're really good at their jobs rather than um, have been spent the last 20 or 30 years in the surf industry. And those guys are like, whoa, hold on. What's going on here? Like, who are you? Yeah. Maybe we don't want surfing to be mainstream. Maybe we just want it to be hardcore still and like um, that traditional culture. So I think they're worried about losing that because that's what surfing has always been for them. But obviously it's going to, the train's going. And so they, the, the best guys that I've seen be able to do this adapt to it and they're embracing all that change and that move to professionalism without losing the heart of it. I guess the heart and soul of it. Yeah. 
but there's a I know there's a couple of people like you said they got their noses out of joint and it's it's hard because it's it's basically I think it's basically from fear they don't want to lose their job and they don't want to lose yeah their connection to surfing that they've known their whole life and they see it going somewhere that they don't understand and there's all these you know young people young guys and young women coming up as you know their two ICs going this is what we need to do and we need to do this with social media and we need to do this and this and this and they're going whoa hold on we're just surfers but yeah it's just the change (laughs) I think you hit the nail on the head it's the fear it's the lack of understanding and knowing and seeing or being able to see what other people can see and and that's scary for people Mm. yeah and it, it moves away from probably what they valued from surfing I think growing up maybe like you said in the 70s 60s, 70s and 80s, it was such a nice, um, I guess, solo little way to enjoy that connection with nature and it was rugged and they and had escape. Little, yeah, escape and core group and now it's become this like, you know, super popular flashy mainstream thing that you can't even relate to on the top level, you know, the flips that they're doing, you'd never see in your free surfs. No. Anyway, maybe at Urban Surf, but not, not at the local <laughs> beaches. No. But, um, yeah, it's just this whole different ball game now. So I think you might see a few of them just, you know, cruise off into the solo lifestyles again, you know, back to the bush or back to their escapism, you know, in a different part of the industry. But, yeah, it's, I, I think it's the most interesting time I've ever seen in surfing. It's incredibly really exciting. Mm. It's incredibly exciting to be, or it would be, I imagine, to be a junior right now. I think about the prospect of being able to compete in the Olympics in Australia oh. in 30, oh. uh, 2032. Honestly, the... Uh, Are you going to start crying, Jess? That <laughs> makes me cry. <laughs> I can't, like, I, like, with so many of the older women in surfing that I've spoken to, back even when I first got into competing overseas, you were lucky to travel and have uh, accommodation to go to most most people traveling for surf comps were figuring it out on the fly sleeping on the beach you know we used to sleep in our board bags on the beach in the events in europe and or in the airport yeah but that that was just the thing and everyone did it and that was why it was so fun and it was rugged and it was so spontaneous and then towards the end of going to events i noticed a lot of the really young girls they were traveling with a, a physio a chef a coach and their parents and we were going what is going on here like how do they have the money to do this first of yeah all? where does that money come from yeah yeah and then second of all how do they get to enjoy the competition party if their mum's just helicoptering over them the whole time like yeah. you know it was more about you all just kind of got over to a country you did your business and you competed and you won or you lost and then you had this huge big party within the little competition community wherever you were in the world and then you just jumped on a plane and went to, and the, went next to the next place. place yeah so that's that's where that shift comes from and I can see it in the young girls around here and in young women and the men that I've seen compete at the maybe even the Woolworths comps they're called they're like under eights and under tens yeah. events in Australia and they are so serious like they are got their warm-up routine down pat they've got claims that mirror like Italo's claim or um Carissa's claims and they are they want to look at the judging score sheets after their heats and they're like under eights yeah they're going to be the ones that are like you said with the Brisbane Olympics it's they are going to be so incredible to watch because they've never known it to be anything other than a professional sport and they've never known their identity in surfing 
as anything else but an athlete. Like they're never that party rock star, you know, whatever. Fly by the seat of your pants, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that that's yeah. I, like I said, I think that's the future of surfing, of uh, the competition at least. And we're going to see that big split too. You know, you see all the lifestyle free surfers and the people that enjoy it um, recreationally, and then you just see this upper echelon of surfers that just go yeah it's because they enhance uh not enhance sorry um uh what's the word like pull in people like yourself and um i know like michelle mitchell is the you know well-being officer for surfing australia pulling in people like that that no one's ever harnessed before in surfing is that that's the next level for us absolutely um i'm going to go back a little bit can i ask you where do you, you grew up in bato bay yeah, but of a brown and bread. <laughs> so that's Central Coast, New South Wales, right? Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah, we're Terrigal. just uh, yeah, like oh, ten minutes north of Terrigal. Yeah, cool. My parents had a house in Green Green Point for quite a few years. Fancy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think there's a Kmart or something down at Bado Bay that Mum didn't like going to for some reason. Yeah, I mean, if you if you wear your UGG boots to Kmart at Bay Village, you're overdressed. So. It's still like that. We're very, it's a, it's traditionally very small surfy um, ocean town. And it's, it's pretty cut off from the other suburbs either side. Like Mm -hmm. just, I don't really know why, like, I guess socioeconomically, it's probably got its own little borders and it's very tight knit surfing community. So yeah, it's funny. We've got a lot of characters around here. (laughs) That's what makes surfing, doesn't it? And that's what makes life. Good stories. Um, so tell us about you were on the QS. You didn't ever get onto the CT. No. no. Was the goal to get onto the CT and become a world champion for you? Yeah, it it was. It wasn't to become a world champion. I wanted to get onto the CT. I don't think I thought as far ahead as being able to be a world champion. Mm-hmm. Um, we had quite a few girls that were on the CT from the Central Coast, like Rebecca Woods and Amy Donahue and. Um, Jessie Bucken is Ace's sister. Um, she was competing on the QS slash CT as well. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the goal because that's probably what I'd seen as a junior. Um, and then, yeah, I got onto the QS. I found it really hard to juggle um, during year 10, 11, 12 to try and have enough cash to support that push on the, on the QS to get to all the events because it used to be, Um, pretty much you had to go to everything so all the different continent all the different legs you had to make sure you made them all Mm -hmm. because you wouldn't have enough points even if you got you know to the third round if you didn't go to all the events you just didn't have enough points points wouldn't gather up yeah so so you needed to get those points to qualify to get onto the ct right Mm, yeah it used to be more of a cumulative approach like they used to take i kind of remember it must have been like eight events and you'd go to like 20 events in the year around the world. So you're just pushing and pushing enough. I really struggled with the financial part of that during those years. And I got to, um, you know, I had some great, I had some good results for me. Like I'm proud of the surfing that I did and had some finals and, um, you know, took some wins in different spots and had some massive heats that were pr- pretty much first round heats for me. But yeah. like I was able to take the win over people that I watch now, like Silvana. I had yeah. a win over her. She probably wouldn't even remember it. It's around one heat. But for me, in my second career, yeah, that was huge for me. And, you know, she had a terrible heat and I had a really good heat. So, it's, you know, with surfing, it's it's so hit and miss sometimes. But Absolutely. Yeah. And then I, I um, 
happen. I, I just got to that point when you're about 17 or 18 and I hated being dependent on people for finance, financial support. Right. Um, so at this age, did you, like, when I was in year 10, 11 or 12, yeah, I had a part-time job, but I wasn't thinking about, <laughs> I certainly wasn't on the tour and wasn't thinking about how I was going to fund myself to go overseas on the next trip. So were you partly funded by mum dad and partly funded by a part-time job or what were you doing um they were really great with their support but they didn't have a lot of free cash because no my parents yeah this it wasn't like a yeah they they were more supportive and kind of like oh we'll help you where we can and I think my ongoing tab was generally just sat around two grand and never maxed out over that um Mm -hmm. you know back 15 years ago two grand was a fair bit of money a lot of money yeah Yeah. but um I managed to that's probably their max. And then, yeah, I just, I was cleaning and I worked at um, a bar here in Terrigal and I did everything I could to not go to school pretty much. I just tried to work and I kept up with school doing emails back and forth with teachers and just tried to pick up jobs and do bits and pieces here and there, surf school work and whatever. And then it was kind of a catch 22 actually, which I didn't really realize. So I was a bit older, but I'd spend the whole off season working the finance the season competing and then you get there and you haven't trained because you've been working because you've been working your ass off yeah (laughs) but that that was that was a really common story that's not you know specific to my experience and yeah I just got to the point where I was sitting like in the top 20 on the QS one year I think I must have been about 18 and and I had that choice to um go and the leg went to South Africa and I just couldn't financially get it sorted. I just could not get enough cash together to do it. And I was like, all I need to do is these last three events. And I'm, I'm close, if not mm. on, but I'm close. And, um, or at least won't regret not having the chance. And then I remember sitting at the back door at home, just bawling my eyes out. Cause it was just, there was no possibility. You know, it's, it just wasn't an option at the time. So I just worked instead and then kind of started to enjoy life a bit more. And then, um, threw my hat in the ring to apply for the fireys for New South Wales Fire and Rescue and I just thought it would be a good start to get you know my adult life going on and yeah. I got in first go when I was oh I would have been about 20 like first I remember getting the email yeah and I was do you I was know like, how incredible that is Jess to get in first go to the fireys <laughs> it was ridiculous back then yeah yeah it and was, probably yeah. irresponsible of them yeah 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 now that I now that I look back on it you know it was I would have been, yeah, 20 or 21. And I I was doing a few events here and there that I could go to just because I loved it and I wanted to travel with my mates and I was still competing and pretty into it. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't chasing kind of that qualification. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I went to an event in America and then I remember standing in my friend's garage and I opened um, an email on a laptop or something and I had an email from the fireys and I thought this was going to take me, you know, five or six turns to get in this was like a mid to late 20s career path I've just got a girlfriend from urban surf who's a coach who's just gotten in and it's been taken her five years mm, that's generally a thing and then yeah um, I just remember going god what do I do now like I actually have to choose between a real job or surfing and just floating around like cleaning and paying my way surfing so I don't I, like I said a different person back then and I just went yeah okay this is it and once I made up my mind with something, it's, you know, that's it. I'm on the path for a fair while. So I came back to Australia and then did my uniform fit. And back in the day, as soon as you got that um, invite to do a medical, you're pretty much in. Like it's, it's, it's like, um, 
just ticking the boxes, the rest of the things you had to do the physical and yeah, had to do the medical and uniform fit, I think. And then yep. that's it, you're straight to college. Yeah. Um, at, at what point in time did you start to notice your mental health decline? Had you noticed it before you went in or after? No, definitely not before. I was a really, I had, you know, you have normal challenges in life before that, you know, your late teen challenges and I had different challenges around my sexuality, like realizing it or being really truthful about it to everybody around me. And I was just Mm -hmm. kind of figuring all that out, but I wouldn't say they were really um, like bad for my mental health. It was just, it just felt like normal life to me. Yeah. And then, um, probably two years in to the fireys after I'd been stationed I really noticed I just was I just felt like a psychopath to be honest I was so highly strong I was just out to it's almost like I was out to completely annihilate myself in every way like physically mentally I everything I would do would be a hundred percent the hardest person there. If people, if I was training with people, I'd train harder than them. If we were drinking or taking drugs, I would take more and I would do it longer and I'll do it crazier. Yeah. Um, risk taking just, just absolutely self-destructive risk taking behavior because I was just so on edge all the time. And uh, it weren't not, like that before. No, I, I was definitely 110% kind of person before but in like I hardly even really drank before because I was so focused on surfing and I was so focused on wanting to perform competitively that I, it just didn't really couple with it. Right. So the drug taking that started whilst you were in the service, yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, that kind of and you know it's only been in the last five or so years of true reflection and going through the worst stuff that I've um, felt for my life so far. Like I know you can have multiple rock bottoms, but that was definitely one of them, at least for my life. Yeah. And um, it's only been with the reflection that I go, wow. And I can see why I was doing things where in the moment I wasn't. You can't see it when you're standing in it. No one can. And I, and I, I had cut myself off so well from the people who did care about me. And I was living in Sydney and, you know, I was surrounding myself with people that weren't close enough to realize and that I could manipulate enough to, um to keep it under wraps you know they'd be like wait why can you just why are you doing that and I'd be like no 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 no," and just you know spin them on another story just to keep them off the scent of how mentally ill I was and why I was acting the way I was do you think that manipulation is a very um, prominent part of mental health problem for you it sounds like it was because it's something that I have seen a lot of yeah for me I think when you if you're a person that is still able to function, maybe in your career or in your everyday life, you're very, you must be very good at manipulating the situation around you to, to not give any clues to anybody because you're like, you can just play it off. Like I'm, I go to work, I'm high, I'm a super successful person. I'm a high achiever every day. I'm more functional than you are on your best day. Yeah. This is the worst days of my life. So don't tell me what to do kind of thing. Yeah. Like you, you're ticking up all the boxes of what a normal human should be doing. If not, you're doing them better. Yeah. And it, it was like that justification to yourself. Like it was like I always had something to prove to myself and I just didn't, I just lost the, I lost my, I lost any presence in the moment whatsoever. And I mm. lost the ability 
to recognize anything for myself, like any of my own behaviors or I didn't know, I didn't even know what a trigger was back then. So knowing that I was being set off left, right and center because of how I was behaving and where I was putting myself was, yeah, you know, like it's uh, going back to that conversation, like getting into early, like as a young 20 year old woman, I didn't have coping mechanisms yet. So I jump into this big barrel with, you know, 28 other men on my station that have all these different coping mechanisms of drinking and drug taking and risk taking and um, promiscuous lifestyle and or gambling. Just, yeah, just like it's such a, a understandable pattern to get into if you don't know what else to do and you're consistently being exposed to the triggers being exposed to. Yeah, so yeah, you, traumas and fatalities and really, really dark, dark um, sides of humanity. Yeah, really dark sides. So you just see it. You live it, you breathe it, you expect it, so you attract it again, and then you just, it's this snowball that just goes and goes and goes and goes. So you, you just wear it, don't you? Mm. Yeah, and I think you, as a fiery, like, you know, before I was a surfer and that was my identity and then I became a fiery and then I had this uniform and then I all my value was in this uniform rather than right. myself. So I was like, as long as I can do this job in my uniform, who cares what I'm doing outside of work, you know? Mm-hmm. That, and that was <laughs> that was my coping mechanism for the first five years in there. Gosh. Were you surfing throughout this time? At the start I was. Um, I was surfing like pretty normally, like almost every day, a couple of times a day when I wasn't working. Um, and then I noticed at the end of the second year, I stopped surfing altogether. I wasn't even interested to be honest I was just like I don't care I want to I want to like go out with all my crew yeah I want to be around the guys that we just went through the weirdest heaviest job together I want to hang out with them because no one else gets it so who cares was that a conscious choice then no no I don't I remember like waking up when I was at the worst at right towards the end of my career you know in year six or year seven or whatever it was I was waking up drinking straight away from waking up and going geez when did I surf last like oh like I can't even remember like oh oh well who knows and then you would just go meet up with the people that you're going on shift with and and yeah just just be absolute self-destructive menaces (laughs) yeah yeah um are you are you comfortable talking about your worst time oh yeah yeah, absolutely. I mean, still, it, it makes my cheeks feel red and it, still now, and I think that's important to note as well for people, like it's not like you have the worst time and then you're over it and then you can just recount and it's fine. Like it's always it's got its little hooks in and even if you've worked on it and tried to dig it up and bring it all to light, it, there's always something that you come back to maybe on a different level with it. Yeah, so, I th- I and I, th- I think that's a good thing that it still brings out a response in you because it still means that, um, not that you didn't care, but you care, but it's something that you need to be careful of. Yeah, I, I'm lucky now. I have such a good support network and um, that's something that I've really built and I'm proud that the people around me have helped build with me. That's mm. something that I just completely didn't know how to tap into before when I was younger. So even if I can't see it now, like if things set me off, they see it before me, like my mom or my brother or my sister or my partner or 
I know even leading into this conversation, I was like, oh, oh, I could feel like, oh, it's been a while since I've spoken about this. This is, you know, like it's such a dark, dark um, feeling around it for me because it yeah. was because it, that it was what it was, you know. And you did tell your family that you're going to have this conversation so that they know. Yeah. Yeah, we spoke about it um, a few times and um, just they kind of felt in and out, you know, uh, you okay to speak about it again? Is this the right time to speak about it? What are you going to talk about? And I go naturally straight into that. Oh, it's like, I need to own it. Like that competitive, you know, I need to, I need to, and it's my story and I need to tell it because it's valuable maybe. And yeah. if I have a problem with it, it's because I'm not okay with it. And that's not okay. Like it goes straight down that path again, but you know, that's. It is what yeah. it is. Um, yeah. So what was happening around the worst time and so, how did it manifest? It actually, it doesn't, the lead into it doesn't feel like the worst time for me. It actually feels like quite a relief um, yeah. for part of the time that all that stuff was happening. So it was right at the end. I was, uh, it would have been 2016. So I was in my mid twenties or late twenties and a couple of years before I'd surfed and I'd done some, the best events that I'd done for my life. And I kind of called it quits on that. And um, I just had had enough. Like we'd had some really bad jobs at work. There was some really dark, like just dark energy dealing with you know, the worst of the worst stuff. Most mm -hmm. of the time that you go to work and, obviously the drinking, the no sleeping, the shift work. That's crazy. Yeah. Shift 24. We changed 24 hour shifts. So the 24 hours really, really played havoc. And then, yeah, I was just acting out a lot at work. So I was getting in trouble as well a little bit because I was acting out and behaving out of rank or out of uniform. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And I just got to a point where I went, you know what? I'm done. I'm absolutely done here. I'm done with life. I can't see it changing and I can't possibly um, bring myself to resign because that would mean I've quit and I can't deal with it. So, and I wasn't ready to, I guess, I don't know if like it's an ego thing or it's a, I just wasn't ready to be like, oh, I can't do this. I would rather go out just like completely blow it all up myself. Yeah. <laughs> so I made a plan. I had um, some annual leave coming up. I teed up a big surf trip. Um, we did a few events, just me and some friends. We went over, um, yeah, just overseas and I, I sold my car. I thought I'd, you know, lined up everything before I left so that no one in my circle would have, was going to be put out. And I felt like I was too far. Tying off loose ends. Yeah. I was uh, in my, in my head, I was too far gone to help or fix. Yeah. And because I'd left it so long to say that there was an issue, I thought, well, I just felt like a lot of shame around bringing it up now. Like I was worried people go, why didn't you tell us this, you know, five years ago? Yeah. And then blame themselves for not being able to see it. Yeah. And I just, I just didn't know what to do about it. Mm. So I, yeah, I just planned it. I dramatically, I feel like it's very fitting to my personality, but I wanted to <laughs> hang myself, which is quite, I think, dramatic, like very theatrical. <laughs> yeah. Later. It is very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, I prided myself on like the, my not tying abilities in the fireys because I was a rescue fiery in there. Yeah. So it was like something that was very close and I was very comfortable with that style of things anyway. Yeah. So I just went on a surf trip, got to the very end, completely just really enjoyed myself, super relieved, didn't feel like I had any pressure. 
my next day um, that I was supposed to, the flight that I'd got home, which was just a fake flight, mm. um, the day after I landed, I was supposed to go straight back to shift. So I was just like, thank God, I'm never going to have to go back to that again. Like, I just don't want to be around that every day. And yeah, and then I, it was the craziest turn of events. <laughs> and now I look at it, I know it happened for a reason, but at the time I, I was pretty out of my mind because I was still taking a lot of different a lot of drugs and yeah. yeah, drinking all the time. And um, yeah, I'd sorted myself out with a, with a hotel room. And then my friend who'd left the night before had this big turn of events, missed his flight to Africa and then came back. And then that was it. I was, my plan was foiled. Like I couldn't, it didn't work. And because um, he was in the room with you. Yeah, he came back. So And he would have found you had you gone through with it? Yeah, pretty much. I it's it's so hard. We haven't really ever spoken about details between me and him. And um it's it's because he finds it very painful, I think. And I Yeah, absolutely bring it up for him. And yeah, I don't I remember like tying the knots and I had it in my surfboard bag. I remember doing it and checking it out on the door jam and making sure the height was right. Yeah, just doing all the standard things I would do at work, God. fixing it, putting it all together, making sure it was foolproof. And not then, failing at doing the job. God, Jess. And then I don't, I don't actually remember. Like it's, I don't remember. To, I, I know from what my family has said that um, he called my dad and dad said, please don't admit her over there or something. Please just get her home if you can. Like, because he didn't want me to be stuck in the psych ward in America or whatever. Yeah. So I don't remember any of the flight home. I don't know how I can't remember. It's 14 hours. But I remember getting, walking out the gates at Sydney airport and mum and dad were there. And I was just like, oh my God, like, am I dead? Or did this not work? Like, wait, wait, wait. I didn't plan for this. Right. It's not part of the plan. What I don't have a plan to deal with this situation. Yeah, I was going to say, how do you cope with that when all your mind has coped with up until that point is yeah. the end? Yeah. And then, then there's afterwards. And I, that's one of the questions I had for you was when you're in that state, do you feel like, because you brought up the word shame, do you feel ashamed then when you're sitting in the hospital, when you've been admitted to rehab, that you didn't follow through and that it didn't work and then that everybody knows now? Oh, yeah. I, have, like, I just got goosebumps with that that's the worst bit of it it's not the that moment and I don't particularly remember the admission either so you know I was obviously still under the influence going there and then I the only thing I remember is walking through the front doors of the psychiatric hospital and seeing two mums that I know from here that mm. work in the hospital and going Shit. they'll know now too yeah and then the head nurse or who the manager of the ward sat me down and said now you're not going to give me any trouble are you you're the first patient I've admitted while you were flying over the Pacific so you know I went out of my way it was that kind of like just don't give me any trouble and then I I didn't say a word I I did not say a word the whole time I remember looking at mum a few times and um they were obviously super distraught I just was numb I was just like I didn't expect to be in this situation I don't know what to do so yeah. I don't know how to feel I don't know what to do and then don't I know how to process no they and they they sedate you straight away I'm sure that you know like I was sedated and I think it took me a couple of days to wake up and realize I was in the hospital so yeah it was it was such a strange experience it was so 
weird as an adult to have all of your decision-making and normal taken for granted freedoms completely gone, like no shoelaces, no phone, no toothbrush, no, no, knives. no anything, no plastic no cutlery, bags, no. no charging cords, like no razors, anything. no, no detergents that they, they do a no. complete suicide sweep of the place. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and the nurses, you know, check on you every 15 minutes if you're high risk. So I just had them like looking at me every 15 minutes and it took me days to get my, to go because you have all the sedation and the, they, you know, drug you up with Seroquel or whatever else they give you to keep you, you know, chill. Yeah. Um, just but so you don't know that concept of time. Like, is that really happening? Because you've got no, nothing to measure it against. Yeah. That's been my biggest probably symptom, symptom or um, side effect from the whole mental um, breakdown incident. My biggest side effect, and it still happens now, and I'm lucky that my family are really good with it, is that I can't, I really struggle at times when I'm really stressed to tell the difference between reality and not reality. And I can't figure out if what's going on is real or not. And that's, that's that feeling that I had in there where I just, it took me days. I didn't trust anyone. I couldn't figure out what was going on. I didn't even know if I was there. Like I just, and that druggy, hazy feeling. And not being able to be in that present moment. Yeah. And obviously there's like not really windows in hospitals and it, you, don't do exercise and you go for one walk a week and whatever else is you eat pretty bad food and you're surrounded by like the rest of the people in my ward were a bar one um they were um drug induced psychosis or mm -hmm. um schizophrenic so they're very different very different very levels of mental health different yeah. mental health to what i was experiencing even though we had similar symptoms and you know it wasn't unusual for people to be taken down with a ketamine jab in the butt on the ward, you know, when we're mm. in there. So it was just like the most surreal experience. But So almost PTSD from the experiences you had in the Far East brought you to this, but then PTSD from the experience in the ward as well? Um, I'm not sure. Maybe that'll come up later. I haven't really explored that enough because I'm still like on that um honeymoon phase with that experience because I it was the trigger that I needed to go you know what I don't actually want to be in here and I don't want to be a fiery and and I don't want to be I, I want to be on earth I don't want to yeah, be I want to be here like I don't want people to be babysitting me to make sure I don't kill myself like I want to live and I want to go to the ocean and I don't want to be trapped in here and have people to telling me what to do so what do I have to do that was like the it took days for that to happen. Like that didn't happen oh, of course. in the first few days. But once I, I can't, I think, I can't even remember what happened. I just wanted to get out. I was like, I had, I, you know, pushed the fake roofing up in my room and climbed up into the roof space and Cavity, was like, yeah. I'm going to escape. And then I was like, you know what? If I escape, they're going to put me back in here. And I hope they don't listen to this because they will go and secure <laughs> all the roofing. And I was like, wait, if I get out, I've had it all planned. If I get out and run, I can go surfing. Cool. And then they're going to get me and they're going to bring me back. Back again. 100%. So what do I have to do to get out of this facility and get to the ocean? And so that's when I got fully on board the program, not wanting to invest or not wanting to believe it would help me, but then it actually turned out to help me quite a lot. <laughs> At what point did you realise that it started to help you? Was it much later than that? Yeah, it was... Yeah. It was way up, like, because I was just like, I'll just, this is just a 
I'm playing the game here. Yeah, I, I just have to tick all the boxes to get out. Boxes, yeah. yeah, you see the psychiatrist every day once a day. Tell them what they want to hear. Yeah. What do you, Take you the meds. Food. Yeah, whatever you want. But I actually truly didn't want to die. I was like, well, it obviously didn't work for a reason. Yeah. So I don't know why, but I want to go surfing. So I want to get to the ocean. Yep, good. I'll take all my medication. I'll say this. I'll go to all the groups. I'll be really involved and engage in them. And then because I'd done that, I actually got a lot of benefit from it, which was not what I was expecting. <laughs> and I learned all these skills, which are like really, really basic human mental health skills that I had never even heard of before. Mm. And like, yeah, that, that, was, that was when I was like, whoa. That yeah. bit makes me sad, that bit. Yeah, that, and I, I actually, I've had plenty of chats about this as well with different fireys and you, people that are still in the job. Like, they sh- that should be the bread and butter of emergency services when you get in. You should be taught these skills. Taught the skills of to be a fiery, but taught the skills to be, yeah, like, look after your mental health. Like, yeah. it's the missing thing that in in everything in my opinion yeah it's it's hard not to get really passionate about because you know it's like the it's the direct link between like you either wait till you get to my point and you're either become someone who tries to commit suicide does commit suicide and dies and then it's a statistic Mm -hmm. or gets put on excessive excessive antidepressants and things that they don't even know if they work properly and if Mm -hmm. not most of the cases that I know of around here have been really detrimental to their health it's like a like every like I'm I know you're so well versed on it and so many people are but treating the symptom like what's the problem here the problem is that we don't know how to deal with it because seeing people die and being there when people are dying in really traumatic situations is not an everyday human kind of thing so how can you be expected to be a functioning human when every day you have to turn into robo mode to get through the day like it's why not? Why are you not addressing the situation here? Why are you just addressing the problems at the end? Yeah. <laughs> Frustrating, Jess? Yeah, it's, it frustrates me. It frustrates me when I speak to um, other fireys that are still in and so many people since I've left and since I so openly left and um, said everybody knew what happened and then I openly was like, you know what? Yeah, this is what happened. But no one told you. Yeah, I was like, I don't care if you think I couldn't deal with it because you know what, it was too much for me and it's because I'm human and I don't want to be a robot and I don't want to be an alcoholic like, you know, everyone (laughs) can't deal with it. So, so many different fireys came up and have spoken to me secretly or via socials just going, I can't deal with it either. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to deal with it. I can't stop drinking. I can't function. I'm a horrible person. I'm, I don't want to be that person with my family, but mm. I can't separate. It's so, and nor it's, should you have to separate your life. Yeah, and that's what frustrates me about it. You know, I've, I really enjoy life now every day. You know, you have your bad days as well, but I'm pretty happy to be mm. doing life and being around the ocean. But it makes me frustrated because there's so many people still stuck in the system, like stuck in it, and they can't use so far gone at that point that it's very hard to figure out which way to swim because you're just in this big washing machine yeah yeah that's what frustrates me about it I can't see hope outside it or can't see a life outside it yeah what was the first feeling like when you got back in the ocean after that (laughs) (laughs) oh because it had been my number one 
motivator being um to get out of the ward the it was like ecstasy like it I didn't even surf my first time out I I struggled to even drive yeah because of the weirdness of medications oh yeah medication and everything but went down to the beach and I just dove under and then I just screamed I just screamed underwater and I kept I'd come up really silent and then I'd dive back under and just scream yeah just like look at everything and go oh thank god like I'm home like god I'm so sorry I forgot that kind of feeling like it was were you talking to your soul when you said that I don't know I I thought I was talking to the ocean but I just yeah maybe who knows I'm I'm still unwrapping those deeper layers at the moment even now like every time I go in the ocean I just go oh thank god yeah thank you gratitude yeah and yeah um where does that leave you now were you diagnosed with anything whilst you're in there because normally when something like this happens and I've got a lot of experience with mental health my uncle for one was diagnosed as schizophrenic when I was about 10 so he lived with us for and still up until this day still was at my mum and dad's place every day even though he lives on my brother's property so he's still living within the family because he's unable to live like by himself um so I've got a lot of experience with going through what he went through, like going off medication, being diagnosed, being diagnosed with the wrong thing. And, and it's a very common thing that it takes a long time because mental health is such a broad um, area of our health and their brain, we, we understand more than we used to, but we still don't understand, I would say 90% of what goes on in the brain and, and, can, and what that health means. So were you given a diagnosis in hospital that was attached to you? Yeah, I've been given quite a few because obviously going through um, all the stuff with the fireys, I had to do heaps of independent reviews as well. So I, I saw a lot of different psychologists. I can't even remember how many, just so many and different psychiatrists and they wanted to, or they trialed all these different cocktails and things um, that they thought were based on what they thought I could be diagnosed with. Right. Um, so it was, I think it's called, it was just PTSD, but like, uh, I think on my discharge papers, it says severe depression, PTSD, and um, I think it says potential bipolar or something. Mm-hmm. But I've had a lot of back and forths with that over different, with different psychologists where they go, well, I think that might be maybe your, all the trauma stuff manifesting or whatever. I don't know. So I never, ha- I never really got super invested in what they decided. They thought that it, I was going through because for me it didn't really it doesn't really matter what they're going to call I don't really care to be honest if they call it anything yeah. because I know it doesn't really feel different if they call it something else it just yeah. feels like thing and um I probably got really comfortable with that after I pulled myself I had um what is it serotonin toxicity uh-huh. and I was because I was on like five different drugs for a long time and they were just playing them off each other and initially when they put me on them, it was their idea was to put me on the drugs so they could put me back on the truck after the hospital and get me back to work. And I was fighting. It took me a long time to fight it. I fought it and I said, I don't want to be a fiery. I don't want to go back on the truck. Like, I don't want to do this job. And the, you know, the return to work officers and the caseworkers and they're like, no, no, well, you can do it because we'll give you this. So you won't remember your nightmares and we'll give you this so that you can go to sleep and then we'll give you this so you pep up in the day to work 
and then how is that different to being a drug addict (laughs) it's It's the same yeah it's just a lot cheaper when you get prescribed them and you oh my god (laughs) um it's yeah it's just and it's not I wouldn't say it was anyone particularly in the process it's just like how it's set up like yeah I was gonna say it's the system isn't it yeah it's how it's set because their aim is to get you back to work because that's your livelihood so they think that's the best thing for you they want to return you light duties then full duties and fully operational and then when you don't want to do that it becomes this whole other thing which it might be a payout for them that they yeah yeah it doesn't happen that often I don't think for them and it's it's outside the script for the system so it's hard for them to digest and you have to really really dig your heels in to go, I don't want this. And I started questioning pretty deep. I've been on medication for years before I started questioning. And I was like going, wait, why am I taking this? Like, why am I, why am I doing this? What's going on? Why do I have to do it like this? Why can't I just go? Why can't I just quit? Yeah. And then at that point they start to, the psychiatrists and psychologists will say, well, that's a symptom. So we're seeing you rebel against that. So we need to up your medication. Yeah. And so they, they try and change it a lot. They try to change a lot and put me on a lot of different things. And then I got really, really crook and I had, um, this is after the ward, I had an episode at, at my place and I'd been doing really well. It'd been probably like four or five months after being discharged. And then I was still taking all the medications. So it was like five different things. And then I had this overwhelming feeling like I was like, I'm literally, my head is going to explode. Like, I feel like I want to blow my head off. Like that kind of feeling where you just can't take it. And I ended up like in my room like pacing and and my mum came over because someone called her and I said you need to take me to hospital something's wrong like I'm going to lose my mind right now and I'm going to blow my own head off because something's wrong and then it ended up being serotonin toxicity and then from that from that point I just went I'm not taking I don't care what the withdrawals are like I am not taking another thing that they give to me and then I went down the path of like I read that optimum health for the gut nutrition bible and then I started going down that path of what I was putting into my body how that affects my mood because I wasn't in I wasn't working any longer so it wasn't my environment no it had to be something else because I'm not going to work I'm not even leaving the house yeah go for a swim so, so it's got to be something that I'm putting into my body be something else yeah like it's and then that's how I went down that path and um yeah it took it took me a while I had to battle a lot and I was lucky I had some good um, professional medical people within the group of the people that were involved with the process that were pretty switched on and clued in and believed kind of like along the same lines that I believe I was like I don't want I'm like 28 29 I do not want to be medically retired and on a disability pension till I'm 65 from the government like you can have your money keep it I don't want it kind of thing and I'm not going to take what you prescribe me anymore because I think that there's something else like I wasn't completely cutting myself off from support services I was just looking for other support and services because it just wasn't, it worked better because it, yeah, it wasn't helping me anymore yeah so yeah I went I went that's when I started on you know the eating and what I'm putting into my body and how I'm thinking what I'm thinking about talking about what's happened you know so much other things that I hadn't tried before which yeah and in a combination they worked so much more helpful yeah harder less less gains I was going to say harder in what way that you didn't appear to get better as quickly yeah yeah less progress on a lot of the things it almost less measurable 
Oh yeah, less measurable. You can't really measure it. I felt like I was going backwards for the first few months with it. That's what a full detox is though. Yeah. Yeah, I just didn't get it. I was so desperate. And then to my mum's credit, like she was just like, let's try this. Like, let's try a float tank. Let's try this meditation. Let's try this. And I was like, it's, I got, I was at the point where I was like, it's not going to help me. It never helped. Nothing's ever helped me before. I haven't tried it yet, but nothing I'd ever tried had helped. So this is not going to help. And then, oh my God, it actually started to help. Something happened and it was different even. It was the change. What was that thing? Better. Uh, it was my first meditation class actually group meditation and I had thought like I was like crystals meditation yeah like whatever pull the other leg kind of thing oils yep yeah exactly and um it's actually what sent mum on her journey too because she wasn't into it at all but she was so desperate to help me um that yeah we just found this beautiful woman I still call her my witch her name's Elisa. We found her in the community and she was running group meditation. And I went and she pulled me aside afterwards. She was just like, I was like a couple of months out of the war. And I, I was just in this full, like, cross my arms, not say anything. Like, I don't trust you. I'm not telling you a thing. I don't know what you think. Like, Even if it has worked for me, I'm not going to tell you now. Yeah, I was in that total mood for so long with her and she just loved it. She just you know she's tapped into something i was gonna say she can feel your energy and the energy belief you can't hide your energy jess (laughs) yeah i think so she was just she's just super tapped in you know like so many of you yourself obviously and lots of different um humans around at the moment that seem to be surfacing and yeah she just pretty much took me under her wing and helped me find a few different things and stuck with me when i swore at her and told her she had no idea what she was talking about (laughs) Yeah. She just literally would sit across and just look at me. I get just... those text messages almost on a weekly basis from one of my <laughs> clients who could relate to your story. Yes. I think the abuse Fuck is off. <laughs> you're on track. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're hitting something that hurts yeah. when you yeah. start getting abused. So I think it's a good, it's, yeah, it's backwards and then it's forwards. Yeah. So you tapped into the meditation and are you still continuing to do daily meditation? Yeah. But I mean, I'm not a, um, I'm it's funny because I'm so dis I love discipline and I love routine but it's like I know it's really good for me so I do it up to I'm like feeling really good and then I go yeah cool I'm done I don't need it and then I stop doing it and then I you know have a few weeks where I'm so down and I go wait oh that's right meditation and I find it again and it happens like bloody hell it does work (laughs) it's like a cycle it happens every couple of weeks or every couple of months and you know how good is it to know that it's a meditation that brings you back rather than a medication? Oh, it's, I honestly will not touch a single medication again, unless I find myself in another situation where all my choices are taken away from me and it's forced upon me as a holding, as a holding cell. or a, a holding, temporary thing. Yeah. yeah I, it's uh, by choice. There's so many other things that I'm willing to battle through to get the long-term benefit from rather than the temporary fix of a medication like yeah sure you feel good for like five seconds and then nothing (laughs) yeah so what's your diet like then it's pretty good yeah I I still have blowouts obviously um we all do we're all human I'm just yeah I still have my like junk foods or whatever once a week or um I notice my diet really cops it when I start feeling really shitty 
and then I couple it with eating. It's like I want to match my feeling or something and eat really bad. But generally it's like fish and veggies and we try and catch our fish and try and source all the local stuff. We're pretty into the whole organically grown, like all local produce at least, like just from little farmers. Um, my partner grows all of our herbs and stuff out the back and we want to be able to like grow everything so that we know what we're eating. Yeah. But yeah, I still, I'm like one of the worst for it. If, if we went to the movies, which you can't obviously, because we're not right now, but yeah, if we went to the movies, I'd have a Slurpee and bowl of popcorn. Like it's fine. I know that if I did that every day and I ate really bad consecutively, after yep. the third or fourth day, I'm so down. Yep. And then it's just like <sighs> spirals really quickly. Um, you know what? I think that's all humans. I don't think that's humans like yourself who have been diagnosed with a mental health problem or gone through a breakdown or anything like that that's all humans it's just people who have had such a crisis in their health like yourself will be more aware of it because they're so in touch with their body yeah i you can see it can't you and other people when you go well why do you feel so bad like everything seems to be going okay but you feel really bad and they're like i don't know but they're like just eating the same takeaway stuff every day but consistently for weeks and you're like whoa I don't even know how you have energy yeah not looking after their gut health is my number one thing Mm. that people don't do yeah gut health in terms of probiotic and eating the right foods for yourself and knowing what works for you and what doesn't because what works for you is not going to necessarily work for the other person and and having the courage and having that support system around you to be able to travels through the journey of finding out what does work for you in combination with medication sometimes because it's necessary, but then weaning down off the medication and, and relying more on what your soul tells you and what your body is telling you. Yeah, exactly. And that was one of the main points that came up at the very start of my questioning them um, post hospital stay is I read a book. I can't remember what it's called, but it was about how majority of your serotonin is produced in your gut. Absolutely. They had just been preaching for me over the last few years of medicating me that it's my serotonin reuptake inhibitor or whatever it is, right? I came to an appointment and said, well, if you're making me take this and all the side effects are like, it's, you know, it makes you nauseous. It completely wrecks your gut um, lining. Yeah, your gut lining. Like it completely screws your whole body taking this particular medication. HP axis between the hormones. Yep. Yeah. And I was like, but isn't 80% of my happiness coming from there anyway if you want to call it like something like that simple oh yeah yeah but it doesn't it doesn't affect how you feel and I'm going hang on hang on like I didn't really understand I don't have a degree in any of it and I'm not um a health you have a degree in your own body though yeah I was like this doesn't make sense to me this doesn't feel right it's just doesn't seem like it all adds up sounds like it's just I don't know it just sounded bullshit to me yeah yeah but yeah it's obviously yeah plenty of people ask me since do I think any depressants uh or medication is necessary and I'm like well I think it depends sometimes if it's going to stop you from literally necking yourself you might need it so like a straitjacket almost mm-hmm. until you figure out what to do mm-hmm. and like if you're using it as a an excuse to not address all the other issues I think it's probably not the best idea because it sends you down a whole different spiral that is hard to come out from yeah with a whole another level of triggers with that oh yeah yeah 
Um, so apart from the meditation, eating well, having a support network in your family and your partner, what else is it that you have that has helped you through this? Do you have a psychiatrist or a psychologist you're working with still or your witch? Um, yeah, I'm still with the witches. There's a crew of them. Um, I stopped going to the psychologist and the psychiatrist regularly um, probably a couple of years ago. I know there's certain times when it comes up and I have gone, like I have a psychologist that I can go to um, but it's probably become less and less, like once every three or four months, maybe, or once every six months, or when I really need it, when I can't figure it out myself mm-hmm. or with my network. Yep. And yeah, I see that I have just started dabbling in the spiritual side of stuff. So I see my witches for different things. Um, real, for me, really out there stuff, but yep, I'm... Yep. I there's no other way to explain the stuff other than like it there's something in it because if there wasn't like this this wouldn't be happening right now kind of situations and it happens a lot so um I can't even think of what we've been doing but I see a lady called Elisa and another lady they work together um her name's Cricket and they both do different things Elisa we do like a lot of um crystal healing stuff and cards and stuff for me chakra healing yeah initially is really out there stuff because they're like quite a practical logical person absolutely so yeah you're tapping into the right side of the brain yeah yeah and um with cricket we do a lot more like talking about things and bringing things up and just really getting messy with emotions and acknowledging them rather than just switching them off which i have a very which I'm now becoming proud of because of the stuff I've been doing with cricket, but I have a very um, quick ability to go straight into like. Yeah. Like if I, if we go past a car crash or something, you know, if I'm driving with L, I can just go straight into like um, program mode. Like we've been so well trained. I can just go straight there, know what to do. Yeah. And then not realize until two or three days later, that it really, really deeply affected me because I can just switch off so easily. Yeah. So I guess learning to switch back on to yeah. my and, and learning where that balance is because sometimes that, that might be necessary to protect you in the moment, but not for long term. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that's what we speak about. Like, I don't want to be, there's going to be plenty more situations. There has been since I left where you're kneeling on the side of the road with someone because of some accident or incident. I can't yeah. be kneeling there blubbering away because I can't help in that state but I can help in my um you know switch off state yeah then, yeah being able to process it later take the time to be upset about it understand why I'm upset about it and then and then move past it rather yeah. than thinking about it forever yeah um a work in progress yeah I think we're all a work in progress my husband is a chiropractor but he tends to draw people or not situations but he's very much like in the realm of someone who is a helper. So we talk about archetypes in the Czech program that you carry these archetypes and you've got four main survival archetypes. So one of his is very strong in wanting to help other people and putting himself normally absolutely last. So people like real, like the first marathon he ran on the Gold Coast, um, he saw this person and met this person at the start line, which was a blind lady with her other runner who was not blind, who was running with her met them, hello, whatever, and like wished him luck and he went on his marathon. Further along in the marathon, of course, 
he comes across her. She was beating him in the marathon, this blind lady. She's sitting down by the side of the road with, the, um, with her helper who had, couldn't complete the race, couldn't complete the marathon because had like not trained properly, whatever the reason, couldn't fail. Yeah. So Andrew comes to help her for this lady across the line for the marathon and like makes the front page of the Gold Coast newspaper because he's done this heroic thing. Those sorts of things keep ha- always happen to him in his life because he gives off that energy of being very much that helping person, which is one of the reasons he went into chiropractic. And it seems like lots of people, particularly you, you give off that energy so that not that you purposely draw them in, but your energy will draw in those situations. You will always be in a situation where you're on the side of the road with a car accident victim. And yeah, you're rolling your eyes. Um, that's just part of who you are and learning to accept that and learning to understand that archetype within yourself and how, how you can live with that in harmony is a really important growth journey that you will be going through. Yeah, maybe I'll have to tap into you guys. <laughs> I would absolutely love to have a conversation with you face-to-face. So what are you doing now? in terms of surfing and giving back to surfing? Because I know I've spoken to a lot of professional surfers and a lot of people in the industry who, once they're finished competing, will want to give back because they feel like they owe surfing something. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been a few years since I've become completely obsessed again and just naturally being so, you know, being in the water every day, all day, and being tapped back into the community, it just started to happen, like, get involved with my board riders again on a bigger level we yeah. kind of drifted away for a while and that's such a tight-knit community we have a lot of young kids and um you know early 20 year olds that are doing really really well in surfing in competition yeah. and so that just kind of snowballed and then I found myself um I got like a random call about commentating a kids event this is a couple of years ago nothing's random but yeah yeah true Uh, and I just thought yeah I'd love to do that like the kids and the grommets are just so happy about surfing and comp surfing so fun so I went and did that and that was with the surfing New South Wales team and then it kind of snowballed again and I know I knew everyone from the industry and team from the past and everyone was now working in a position you know putting events together or putting commentary teams together and I'm running all these different tour things and yeah, then it just went from comp to comp and then different events and then it just started going to the QS and then just working with different people. So predominantly I'm commentary and doing webcasts. I started on the beach announcing and um, I love that because you're just in the thick of it and you're calling scores and it's just like full atmospheric. Like you're almost um, in the water with them, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's honestly so exciting for the grommets like because of the, it's like their championship tour but it's like under eight or under 10s division and it's just so exciting to watch and all the politics around it you know all the parents and it's, funny. Yeah. it's so good and yeah then I can do some I've been doing some QSs and actually started the year it must have been in January 2020 in China for a QS just mm-hmm. before they shut it down like for the whole COVID thing we were over there for the corona open of China <laughs> Of course you were, yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I worked over there. That was like a um, WSL event and then done some more work with them. And yeah, it's pretty, it's such a good time to be a part of that. Like, you know, you've heard of Shannon Hughes and there's a bunch of women at the moment that have just kind of skyrocketed into these positions that are really embracing what I think surfing's about along with the guys that are champion. And yeah, so I'm just, it's pretty freelance, like the commentary gig, it's super freelance yeah. and um yeah just 
I just can't wait for comps to come back on because I'm just like, yep, I'll do that. And you're pretty much on tour again. You just don't have to compete. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome, isn't it? Yeah. It's really and someone nice. pays you to do it. Yeah, true. Yeah. They pay you and they feed you and they put you up and, you know, mostly they're all your mates that you're traveling with because they're just like-minded people and you surf after work and you try and surf in your lunch break and yeah, it's pretty good. You watch surfing all day. I, I told them at the start and someone told me you have to stop saying that because they'll stop paying you but I said <laughs> I, I would say that to perfect yeah. surf as well it's too good a job you, did, you don't need to pay me to be here and then exactly. like my students go sure you need to be like you need money yeah exactly that's the, how I feel about it too like I will watch surfing all day every day at home anyway and probably commentate to myself on the microphone but yeah. if you want to pay me, <laughs> sure I'm like the biggest fangirl for watching competitions and that so yeah, that's what I'm doing. And the, I, the AIS. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, they've just announced the accelerator program. Yeah, so they're they're really investing in um, athletes post their com- competition career at the moment, and particularly female athletes. So there's a team of us. I think there's 17 of us all together, and we've been picked. We've either just retired or have had a career when you where you've represented Australia, yeah. and then are interested in coming back into the industry and they're upskilling and um, kind of just providing heaps of framework and for you to figure out where your spot is, what skills you need to be in that spot and how to like navigate the industry that you're in. So for me, like Sally Pearson and Casey Delacqua and people like that are on the program with me. And so I'm just like full Stephen Bradbury in the <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what am I doing? How did I get here? I don't know, but I will take it all and it's absorb not, it like a sponge. Exactly. It's not where I thought I would be at all. And I, and I have you know, Michelle, Michelle Mitchell and the Surfing New South Wales crew to thank for that too. Michelle Mitchell was the one that I worked at an event. She was working with the Australian team there. And she just said, Hey, I've, I've, you know, if they're doing this program, do you think you'd want to apply for it? And I said, yeah, I'll apply. But and I think it was, yeah, obviously it was meant to be that and the other athletes that could have applied were away competing or doing other things and then I was just so keen and just like yeah I'm I'm ready I'll whatever you want to teach me like we're doing like LinkedIn sessions and very cool all these things that I would never even imagine I could do so life skills to build your life after surfing and after sport yeah and like I said from the very start of this chat like surfing is one of those things that you like obsess about fantasize about I I don't mind if I'm getting paid or not I really don't like I'm just so obsessed with it and I'm happy to be, be alive I guess yeah absolutely so happy to be alive like second chance for sure and not many people get that you know no, so I don't I'm very very grateful for that for whatever reason that happened and maybe the crystals will tell me one day but <laughs> I'm very happy for it what advice would you give to young women coming up through now in terms of looking after their mental health? And do you think the bigger companies like Rip Curl, like Billabong, need to have this whole encompassing health um, in support of their athletes, like mental health programs within the up and coming people? Uh, I think it's, it is, I guess the biggest bit of advice would be it is so much easier to address it and deal with it before it becomes this festering problem that you have to reset your whole life for. Like it is so much easier to not lose everything 
and to um to just deal with it from the start and to learn the things even if you think you're never going to use those those coping strategies and mechanisms and to understand your own mental health and I think um, the shift that's happened in surfing is going to bring about that spotlight on it like with Brooke Farris becoming the CEO at Rip Curl like she's been around surfing for so long I remember her from the events um, I think not necessarily being a woman in that position but bringing that feminine energy more so because I know there's men that have that and I yeah. know there's so many awake guys that have the same feelings about it that so many women do I just think it's easier for women to speak up at the moment about it but bringing that feminine energy and Brooke might be the example of that for Rip Girl yeah. into those organizations or into the surf industry then it just gives people a bit of a chance like even all the men that work under her it gives them a chance to have like the emotion and not be like you know attacked for it yeah so that just opens this whole new talk like this whole they're going to be talking about that stuff now because they just are because their boss is not going to be telling them be quiet because she's so she's about it she's like a holistic human you don't get to that position without being quite holistic so um yeah I think it's I think it's going to be the new way I think that the young athletes are already doing it they already work with a lot of sports psychologists or they're looking at that as a possibility in their careers and they know that if you know, with surfing, it's like 80% mental. Like it really is. Everyone mm. surfs at a pretty similar level, unless you're Carissa or Steph, which is like beyond as, that. Yeah, you're Italo or you're you're the tiny little handful of professional surfers. A very on top. Yeah. The, the rest of them that make up the tour, the difference between them being number two or number three or number 20 is the headspace. It is every heat is their decision-making how calm and relaxed they are and how they're able to handle what's going on. Like it's headspace. Their surfing's there. Their boards are the same. The mm-hmm. training's the same in the water. The surf is the same for them. Like it's headspace that so they can, um, and I know they are, they're looking at those and someone like Joanne DeFay is a perfect example. Yeah. She, her mental fortitude and her awareness, she was just like an average surfer when we were doing the tour. She was so just stock standard. She had some good days. But mostly she's average in the middle of the pack with everyone else. And now yep. she's like. She's stepped up there. Yeah. And it's like head. It's all headspace. Yep. And everyone's going, well, what the hell did she do? Yeah. And I think that people, uh, they're just finding it. So I think that's why there's not that many people that are kind of like chased down for their skills yet. There's just a couple because someone else has used them. Oh, yeah, you, you use them. They worked. Can I use them? Because people are a bit like, whoa, like wary about it. Yeah. yeah. And not, not sure what questions to ask about how they've done that. But yeah, yeah. it's breaking new- down those barriers though. Oh, yeah. It's it's the future of surfing. If, even just for recreational surfers, if you want to harness your headspace and your energy, you're going to be surfing so good. <laughs> you just are. Or at Absolutely. least like you are. So you are. And enjoy the stoke more. Mm. Thanks so much for being with me today, Jess. This has been beautiful. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Amongst the Waves. I would love for you to leave your review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews help increase our rankings, let more people listen to the podcast and share the love.